This is Unfilter, episode 285, for July 4th, 2018. We need to see the evidence. If you have evidence of wrongdoing by any member of the Trump campaign, present it to the damn grand jury. If you have evidence that this president acted inappropriately, present it to the American people. Whatever you got, finish it the hell up, because this country is being torn apart. Hey America, and welcome to the Unfilter Show, episode 285 of Jupiter Broadcasting Show that's helping you watch at least a little bit of news, we hope. My name is Chris. Mr. Chase is in the border at North Korea going through some sort of customs procedure, so he won't be here this week, but we still have a hell of a show. It doesn't matter if it's America's birthday, and it doesn't matter if fireworks are going off like crazy all around us. Oh my goodness! I do apologize. There may be a few explosions in the background. Let's just say this area of Washington loves them, the fireworks. There's a few um, there's a few off-the-grid fireworks shops that you can go to, <laughs> and you can get some really good fireworks. So you may hear a few explosions in this week's episode. But that won't just be the fireworks. No, in fact, it'll be the cyber segment, the Russia investigation, the high note, and much more. Now, I'm here not only because of your great support on our Patreon this week. Thank you, everybody, so much. But because there's some really big stories to cover this week. And when we start with the cyber, it's one of the original stories that inspired the cyber segment, the NSA, when Edward Snowden, around episode 80-ish of this here show, leaked to The Intercept and others. Actually, it wasn't even The Intercept at the time. It was just Glenn. All of those NSA secrets, it inspired us to start this segment to track this kind of stuff. Well, this week, we're kicking things off in the cyber segment with the NSA deleting nearly 700 million call records. In the National Security Agency that collects signals intelligence, such as phone logs, emails, and text messages, is now destroying hundreds of millions of records after NSA analysts found technical irregularities in data provided by the phone companies. That meant the NSA got so-called metadata that it was not supposed to have. Metadata shows phone numbers and how long you're talking, but not the contents. Oh, we always got to point that out, don't we? Every single time. Got to make sure you understand. It's not the contents. It's just the metadata. In a statement, NSA said these irregularities also resulted in the production to NSA of some call detail records or CDRs that NSA was not. Oh, 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 our clip cut off there. Well, what she goes on to say is at the end. Actually, I'll play it. I'll play a backup clip. You know what? I come prepared. The NSA has begun deleting huge quantities of phone records that it was never supposed to have in the first place. Dan Cohen has the details to that. The National Security Agency isn't exactly known for its respect for privacy, and it announced on June 28th it had begun deleting hundreds of millions of records of phone calls and text messages dating back to 2015. In a statement, the NSA attributed the unauthorized collection of vast amounts of private data to, quote, technical irregularities in some data received from telecommunication service providers. Now, I want to stop right here because I can't help but watch this clip with Donald Trump's damn tweet in my head. I hate this, but it's the reality. 
Donald Trump implied in a recent tweet, uh, I hate everything about the words that just came out of my mouth, that this is related to the quote-unquote witch hunt, that perhaps the NSA had collected records about Donald Trump and his associates illegally, had stored them, and that this massive deletion is an effort to cover that up. The NSA's general counsel, Glenn Gerstel, told the New York Times that the blame for the unauthorized collection was on one or more unnamed telecom providers and several complex technical glitches. In fact, some of the language, and I have it in the show notes, is really over the top. Uh, A technical issue infected the data. A technical glitch caused a cascade issue. Like, all of this really generic, not actually used by anybody in the the industry language is being used to describe what happened here. And it's just, it's kind of odd because the NSA is throwing the carriers under the bus. And the reason why I say that's odd is because it's just recent legislation that shifted it so that the carriers do the collection and then give the NSA access. Uh, in the past, the NSA was collecting directly. And now here we are just a couple of months into this new system, thanks to the new legislation, and they're throwing the carriers under the bus, but yet the deleting the data that goes back to 2015. Well, in 2015, they were doing the collection directly. They've only been getting the data feed from the telcos since around the beginning of this year, 2018. This is a new development. This isn't how it worked in the past. And yet they're blaming them for an error that has them going back to 2015. It doesn't add up. The NSA was authorized to collect phone and text records from telecoms under the 2001 Patriot Act to find terrorism suspects. In 2013, former contractor Edward Snowden revealed the existence of a secret data collection program targeting U.S. citizens. Well, the 2015 Freedom Act was... There it is. So it is, it's, a, it's newer than this year. I see. So it's the 2015 Freedom Act. It seems like that was more recent. Supposed to rein in the agency, it collected more than 151 million records in 2016 and 534 million in 2017. All Donald Trump's. And while the NSA is deleting records, the privately owned social media giant Facebook... Let's stop there. We don't need to go on a Facebook rant. Let's, let's pause for a moment. So what would, why, you know, this is actually, you remember one of the biggest responses to the all Edward Stone's revelation, revelations about the NSA. One of the biggest responses was, well, why does it matter? It doesn't impact me. I'm not selling drugs. I'm not doing anything illegal. I don't care if the NSA watches what I do. I have nothing to hide. We all heard that one, right? And it's actually a bit sound. It actually is. It's, they're right. The NSA isn't bulk collecting three days of internet activity and all of the call records so that way they can find out when you and your family are getting pizza. That's not why they're doing it. They're doing it for political reasons so that way they can monitor D.C., so they can monitor the politicians, so they can have leverage. That's the reason why you really do it is so that way you can monitor the people that need to be monitored under the guise of anti-terrorism efforts. That's why you really do something like this. And so it would seem pretty reasonable that they would be using a tool like this to collect calls from individuals like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And there's probably lots of loopholes using the FISA rules with people from other countries that they have discussions with. Because the NSA can hop five friends, 
So it seems pretty easy to, if you can go international, to hop five friends to Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. It seems like it's a lot of bacon. So I'm not actually fully coming down as this is my theory. But this mass deletion may have something to do with all of this. Donald Trump may have been right. Something smells rotten. And the issue is, you can't really rely on the Justice Department. And you definitely can't rely on the FBI. Comey really kind of showed us how rotten the FBI is. Well, Comey and then, of course, all of those text messages that came out. It really seems like the core of the FBI is rotten. But this clip I'm about to play you reminds you that the FBI is rotten throughout the entire organization, even down to the state level. Now, this is in the cyber segment because FBI agents posing as al-Qaeda online are still trying to collect people in. I want you to keep something in mind as you listen to this clip. The man that they pulled into their web had no means of explosives, had no means of committing any kind of damage or murder, had actually... Nothing more than conversations that come across sounding like he's trying to get in with a new group. We've got some breaking news from the FBI in Cleveland announcing an arrest in connection to a possible terror attack planned for the 4th of July. For more, let's bring in NBC News Justice correspondent Pete Williams. Pete, what do we know? Well, the man they've arrested is named Demetrius Nathaniel Pitts. He's 48, a U.S. citizen, lived in the the, uh, Cincinnati area, then moved to Cleveland. And authorities say starting last year, he began to express on social media support for Al-Qaeda. Uh-oh, Al-Qaeda. Terror group and a desire to attack or have uh, targets in the U.S. attacked. Now, we've seen cases like this before. The FBI did hear what it has done dozens of times in the past. It introduced to him a man who was posing as an Al-Qaeda sympathizer or Al-Qaeda operative who was, in fact, an undercover FBI agent. Oh. Oh. Oh, you mean like entrapment? Yeah, there go the fireworks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fireworks. Woo! Fireworks! <laughs> America! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Woo! We've got some breaking news from the FBI in Cleveland announcing an arrest in connection to a possible terror attack planned for the 4th of July. For more, let's bring in NBC News Justice correspondent Pete Williams. Pete, what do we know? Well, the man they've arrested is named Demetrius Nathaniel Pitts. He's 48, a U.S. citizen, lived in the the, uh, Cincinnati area, then moved to Cleveland. And authorities say starting last year, he began to express on social media support for al-Qaeda, the terror group, and a desire to attack or have uh, targets in the U.S. attacked. Now, we've seen cases like this before. The FBI did hear what it has done dozens of times in the past. It introduced to him a man who was posing as an al-Qaeda sympathizer or al-Qaeda operative who was, in fact, an undercover FBI agent. And the FBI says over several months, Pitts expressed a desire to locate or or scout or do reconnaissance on specific potential targets in the Cleveland area, including a park, including the the, uh, location where the 4th of July gathering would be. Imagine how it goes down. You're a dumbass. You get a little drunk. You get on Facebook and go, man, America is so screwed up. I wish there was something I could do to make people wake up and realize how fucked everything is. Hashtag kill Trump. Smith. And in the morning, you get a contact from some people that seem pretty cool. And you can understand them. They speak fairly good English. 
How lucky is that? And they like you. And they think you can help them shift the perspective of the American people. And they begin to work with you. And you want to get in. You want to be in this club because you're a pretty screwed up individual. And you're a little depressed and you really just want to belong. And they begin working with you. And they begin kind of incentivizing you to please them. It leads you down a path, doesn't it? A park, including the, the uh, location where the 4th of July gathering would be, and repeatedly said that uh, he wanted to kill people or at least assist in killing people. Which one is it? That's a pretty big difference. Did he want to kill somebody or did he want to help kill somebody? It's kind of something that matters. He said that uh, he wanted to kill people or at least assist in killing people. Uh, and according to the U.S. attorney, Justin Herdman, he, the man certainly had evil intent. Ooh, evil intent. He had evil intent. You didn't know that they had Deanna Troy, an empath from Betazoid, reading people's emotions at the FBI. No, no, yeah. That's one of the ways they can tell is they have telepaths that can read your emotions and your intent, and then they can convict you. He wanted to target, even initially, from the very, very beginning of this, people at a July 4th parade. Oh, people at a July 4th parade, and they're putting the news out the day before the 4th of July. Total coincidence. And he also talked about wanting to target people watching fireworks over downtown Cleveland. Now, they've known about this son of a bitch for months. Because Pete just told you this was a multi-month effort by an by two undercover FBI agents who were probably playing him good cop, bad cop, or pretending like they're two different people from the same group. Can you imagine? Like, one person that is tricking somebody who's a little screwed up in the head is one thing. But two FBI agents working the same agenda under two different different identities, that's... I mean, that would get me like not to blow stuff up, but like if two, you know, two people working together like that, you're going to how would you know? How would you have any idea, especially if you're not that savvy with, you know, the way the Internet works? And so then they sit on this information to scare you right before the 4th of July. And while they're trying to scare the shit out of you, they also try to come across as the people that are rah, rah, America. Everybody go get together in a group. He also talked about wanting to target people watching fireworks over downtown Cleveland, right outside this building. But he also wanted to strike at the values that are at the very core of our nation. Yeah, because, you know, you can see a lot of people like, God, you know what I really want to do is I want to strike at the values of America. I want to strike at the core values of the nation. Okay, what are those? What? What are the core values? What do you mean? You want to strike at what core values? Oh, um, capitalism? He wanted us to be afraid to speak our minds. He also wanted us to be afraid to gather together in public places. So I ask this week that we all continue to gather, continue Woo! to celebrate America, continue yeah! to celebrate our men and women in law enforcement, to acknowledge those. Yeah, celebrate them. Celebrate those entrapping bastards. Celebrate them. Who have given their lives on the line of duty. Yeah, given their lives on the line of duty of watching stupid Facebook posts from drunk sons of bitches. To engage in the exchange of ideas that is central to our democracy. To continue to have our barbecues and continue to go see fi fireworks. 
Now, to be clear, authorities say Pitts himself did not have any explosives and did not have any means of carrying out an attack. But one of the reasons they were concerned about him, Chris, is that they said he had a criminal background. He'd been arrested before. For and don't don't forget to mention he's black. So that, you know, helps. He had a criminal background and he's black and he wanted to make America pay. You know what he reminds me of is Putin. Well, except for the black part. Although I'm not so sure, actually. Uh, Putin's pretty cool. Uh, so let's get in to the Russia investigation and determine what Bob's up to and really determine the truth. Because Russia hacking goes beyond the election. It's time to bring us up to speed on what the current state of propaganda is around the great Russia hack. Russian meddling is so much bigger than the 2016 campaign. Agents of a hostile foreign power reached into the United States using our own social media platforms. They established social media pages and groups to communicate with unwitting Americans. They're using these platforms to try to divide us. All right, let's stop here. Just, you know, a few seconds in. So they did create social media advertising campaigns for years leading up to the election. They did create Facebook group pages. You know what they won't tell you in this clip? For some reason, they failed to mention how many followers those pages had, how many retweets their tweets had, how many ad engagements their ads had. They will fail to mention the dollar amount that the Russians spent compared to Trump or Hillary. They somehow neglect to mention those aspects because those numbers are embarrassingly low. They had no followers. They had no retweets. They had no engagement. And the amount they spent on ads was pennies compared to the other campaigns. We're at a point where people don't trust anything. Frankly, the United States is under attack. What most people don't realize is the Russians didn't just meddle in the election of Donald Trump. They targeted almost every major American social movement. The defendants and their co-conspirators pretended to be grassroots activists. According to the indictment, the Americans did not know that they were communicating with Russians. That is damning, and that is really unexcusable. It's meddling. It's interference. It's trying to influence a democracy. It's fucking awful. It also is exactly what George Soros does. It's exactly what the Koch brothers do. It's what Al Gore does. It's what all political influencers attempt to do. What about all of these protests that have been going on? What about all these protests where somebody creates signs, they organize people to get into events? Something tells me there's a lot of money. There's a rich son of a bitch behind all of these massive protests that are taking place across the U.S., one in which I just was stuck in and I'll get into here in just a moment. Isn't that exactly the same thing? According to the indictment, the Americans did not know that they were communicating with Russians. I don't think many people in the protest know that they're communicating with the company that's funded by George Soros or the Koch brothers. I think that you could make that same argument. The Russians were really good at this. After the election, it took months for Congress, the U.S. government, independent researchers and investigative journalists to figure out what really had just gone on. You know, they're just using the existing avenues that other influencers are using. They didn't create a single new avenue. That's why it's such 
bullshit. It's such bullshit. And there was a recent hearing. It was it was a hearing with DOJ officials and FBI director, really ostensibly about the Hillary Clinton email investigation and the Russia investigation. And it was extremely heated. Inside a House hearing room, a political production. I'm reading what the press said. I'm reading what well, the press I would said. suggest that you not rely on what the press says. Who are we supposed to believe? Thank you for making clear it's not personal, Mr. Jordan. <laughs> well, I, I didn't, I'm saying the you Department of Justice. Me because I'm telling the truth and I'm under oath. The hearing ostensibly focused on FBI actions during the Hillary Clinton email investigation in 2016. And that senior agent working on the Russia investigation at the time who exchanged anti-Trump text messages with a colleague he was having an affair with. At one point, Agent Peter Strzok saying of a Trump presidency, we'll stop it. These people were also the very same people who were assigned to investigate the man that they hated, then-candidate Donald Trump. But critics see all this as a cover for Republicans' real purpose, they say, to try and undermine the special counsel investigation, overseen by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. They're not interested in protecting our country from a future attack or holding responsible those who worked with the Russians. This is just an effort to work as the president's fixers in Congress. Now, this Democrat out of California has been one of the biggest pathetic losers. When he goes on Cucker, he can't defend his position at all. He's been on there a couple of times. We've played both appearances on the show. He is so balls deep, and I hate that expression. He is so balls deep in the Putin 40 chess player story that that was the guy they go to. They couldn't find someone. The only other person that would be more biased on this topic would be Sheriff Woody. Those who worked with the Russians, this is just an effort to work as the president's fixers in Congress. The White House says not so. There's no evidence of Russian collusion. So, of course, there's a frustration point to wrap this up. The special counsel's Russia investigation has lasted about 400 days. Oh. But the investigation into Iran-Contra lasted six times as long. Milk, 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 milk. Whitewater, seven times. Money, 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 money. Whatever you got, finish it the hell up. All right, so let's do this Gowdy clip. You saw me play it there in the intro. Let's go deep on Gowdy. This is a extended version of the conversation, and I feel like he's getting a lot of shit more than he normally gets for this kind of stuff, and he's also getting a lot of Gowdy mode praise, and I think it would be a lot more beneficial if you could watch the larger context of the conversation. Chair recognizes the gentleman from South Carolina, Mr. Gowdy, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. The Russia investigation has been going on for almost two years now. Special counsel's investigation has been going on for over a year now. For most Americans, it's important to know what Russia did to our country in 2016 and with whom, if anyone, they did it. Uh, when a foreign state interferes with our democratic electoral process, um, it should be chance of a lifetime for a law enforcement agent to investigate that, except apparently the one that was actually picked to investigate it. Uh-oh. So he's making a good point. Like, this is a career-defining investigation. Uh, that was Peter Strzok. FBI agent Peter Strzok was picked to lead the FBI's investigation into what Russia did in July of 2016. It was a counterintelligence investigation begun in late July 2016, and he was leading it, and at about the exact same time, he was picked to lead it, this dispassionate and uh, fair FBI agent was calling Trump a disaster, destabilizing for the country. Uh, I'll leave out uh, all the F uh, adjectives he used. to Fuck and fucking. 
It's not that hard to say. Describe that. I'll just go with disaster and destabilizing. Same time, his uh, FBI lawyer girlfriend, Lisa Page, was telling him he was meant to protect the country. Save me. This neutral, dispassionate FBI agent said, I can protect the country at many levels. Same time, Peter Strzok, who was picked to objectively, fairly, neutrally look into the Russia investigation. The reason why he's dropping the fairly uh, dispassionate, unbiased, uh, that's all because of the recent IG report. Was talking about an insurance policy with Andy McCabe and Lisa Page in the event Donald Trump became the president. Oh, All of this was happening at the same time Peter Strzok said he could smell the Trump support in southern Virginia. All this was at the same time that this FBI agent said a Trump presidency would be effing terrifying and that it will never happen. No, no, we'll stop it. So while investigating Russia and their attempt to subvert our democracy may have been important to the rest of the country, it wasn't all that important to about a half dozen FBI agents and lawyers who were assigned to the case. For them, it was an investigation to stop Donald Trump, which then brings us to May of 2017 and the appointment of special counsel, where we find Peter Strzok again, this same supposed to be dispassionate, neutral, fair FBI agent. You would think he'd be really excited about investigating <laughs> what a foreign power tried to do to this country. But yeah. you would be wrong again, for Peter Strzok, at precisely the same time that Bob Mueller was appointed, precisely the same time. Peter Strzok was talking about his unfinished business and how he needed to fix and finish it so Donald Trump did not become president. He was talking about impeachment within three days of special counsel Mueller being appointed. Three days. That's even quicker than MSNBC and the Democrats were talking about impeachment. Oh, that's so good. Let's do it three one days. more time. That's even quicker than MSNBC and the Democrats were talking about <laughs> impeaching. Within three days, the lead FBI agent is talking about <laughs> impeaching the president. Oh, one more time. I'm sorry. I got Jay it. I got it. One more time. That's so good. That's just so classic Gowdy right there. And finish it so Donald Trump did not become president. He was talking about impeachment within three days of special counsel Mueller being appointed. What are we going to do when he leaves? Who else is going to do this? This is so damn entertaining. Three days. That's even quicker than MSNBC and the Democrats were talking about impeaching. Within three days, the lead <laughs> FBI agent is talking about impeaching the president. Yeah, it was ridiculous. So this is where we are. We're two years into this investigation. We're a year and a half into the presidency. We're over a year in the special counsel. You have a counterintelligence investigation that's become public. You have a criminal investigation that's become political. You have more bias than I have ever seen manifest in a law enforcement officer in the 20 years I used to do it for a living. And four other DOJ employees who had manifest animus towards the person they were supposed to be neutrally and detachedly investigating. Democrats are using this investigation as a presumption of guilt, which I, I find astonishing. And in the long run for the health of this republic, I would encourage them to go back to the presumption of innocence that we used to hold sacred. Rosenstein is shaking his head in agreement as uh, Gowdy says this. I think in some points, uh, Rosenstein isn't necessarily in disagreement with Trey. Republic, I would encourage them to go back to the presumption of innocence that we used to hold sacred. There's a presumption of guilt. There's a desire by Democrat senators to fundraise off of your investigation. 
More than 60 Democrats have already voted to proceed with impeachment before Bob Mueller has found a single solitary damn thing. I just can't. More than 60 have voted to move forward with impeachment, and he hasn't presented his first finding. Reclaiming my time. So I'm going to say this to you, Mr. Ray, Mr. Rosenstein. I realize that neither one of you were there when this happened, but you're both there now. Uh, Russia attacked this country. They should be the target. But Russia isn't being hurt by this investigation right now. We are. This country is being hurt by it. We are being divided. We've seen the bias. We've seen the bias. We need to see the evidence. If you have evidence of wrongdoing by any member of the Trump campaign, present it to the damn grand jury. If you have evidence that this president acted inappropriately, present it to the American people. Uh, There's an old saying that justice delayed is justice denied. I think right now all of us are being denied. Whatever you got, finish it the hell up, because this country is being torn apart. I would yield back, Mr. Chairman. Either the witnesses care to respond to the... What is the question there, right? Would either of the witnesses care to respond? Like, what are you responding to? Uh, but Rosenstein actually takes him up on it. I, I got to kind of respect that. Either of the witnesses care to respond to the... Well, I would uh, simply respond, Ms. Gowdy. I certainly share your views about those text messages. and uh, You know, those text messages. Nobody is more offended than I. I believe that. I like Rosenstein's look there, too. He's like, trust me, these guys have given me a literal ball ache. This is a massive problem for me. <laughs> it's good. About those text messages. And uh, nobody is more offended than I about what's reflected in those messages. With regard to the investigation, uh, I've heard suggestions that we should just close the investigation. I think the best thing we can do is finish it appropriately and reach a conclusion. And I certainly agree with you, sir. People should not jump to conclusions without seeing the evidence. I've been the victim of fake news attacks myself, so I'm sympathetic. I agree with you, sir, that uh, there's been no allegation made by the Department of Justice or the special counsel other than what's reflected in those documents that are filed publicly, the charged folks. Nobody should draw any conclusions beyond those charges. I do whine because I want to win. Hmm. Now, there was also uh, this uh, news report that included a bunch of other good clips. So it it will retread some ground, but it also covers a bunch of uh, like uh, great moments from what was uh, honestly one of the more rambunctious, uh, if you can uh, allow the term. (laughs) I mean, keep it within context here. One of the more rambunctious hearings I'd seen. Well, we got a lot of uh, movement, a lot of traffic right now because the hearing after six hours uh, has just wrapped up. And if we're lucky, we may see the deputy attorney general and the FBI director uh, heading down that way where we've got uh, a bank of cameras. Uh, One theme that really dominated the hearing today were these outstanding records uh, that show the FBI's intelligence activities prior to July 31st, 2016. That is when the Russia collusion case officially opened. Those records were first under subpoena in April and the subject of a very testy exchange earlier today. So your statement that I'm personally keeping information from you, trying to conceal information. You're the boss, Mr. Rosenstein. That's that's correct. And my job is to make sure that we respond to your concerns. We have, sir. Now, I've appointed Mr. Lausch, who is managing that production. And my understanding is it's actually going very well, sir. 
So I appreciate your concerns. Again, I think so the House of Representatives is going to say otherwise. But, but your use of this to attack me personally Why did you is not wrong. Well, we saw consistently from Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee today is that they were really on the offensive. They were doing what they could to reaffirm the decision-making of the FBI director and the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Here's one exchange. Mr. Wright, are you one of those 13 angry Democrats that my Republican colleagues keep referring to? Well, Congressman, of course, I'm not working on the special counsel investigation. But you're the head of the FBI. Are you, are you, are you a, a Democrat? Did, did the president reach over to the Democratic Party, as, as uh, presidents have, and pick you because he wanted to have Democrats in his administration? Congressman, um, I'm trying to do this job apolitically, but I do not consider myself an angry Democrat. You okay. can be quite confident Are you a Democrat? I'm, uh, no, I am not. You're not. You're not a Democrat. Thank you. I should maybe I should have gone to that question. Mrs. Res, Mr. Rosenstein, are you a Democrat? Uh, I'm not a Democrat, and I'm not angry. Okay, so that was a clear reference uh, to one of the many Trump uh, Trump tweets that we've had uh, on the subject. A couple of sort of housekeeping matters on uh, Agent Struck. Uh, Agent Struck, uh, a number of times during his uh, closed-door uh, interview yesterday, refused to uh, answer questions. And what we learned today is that one of those questions had to do with his contact with the co-founder of the opposition research firm Fusion GPS. That was the firm uh, behind the dossier. And we also learned that Special Counsel Robert Mueller has taken specific steps to see if Agent Strzok made any direction, uh, chose any, sorry, decisions, or took the special counsel investigation in a direction that really was a reflection of the political bias that is seen in the text messages, Shep. Catherine, in the middle of all of this, it's my understanding the House Republicans passed a resolution. That's right. Uh, this is a non-binding resolution. What? It calls on the deputy attorney general to what? provide what? the remaining records that are sought by these three committees, House Judiciary, House Intelligence, and House Oversight. That was a vote uh, 226 Republicans uh, to 183 uh, Democrats. One of the sort of testy moments in the hearing came with uh, Congressman Darrell Issa, and he asked the deputy attorney general, look, if we go forward on contempt and we want to pursue it in the district court in Washington, will you throw up any roadblocks? What? And here that is. A little preemptive. Do you believe that you have the ability to be above the law, something the American people do not? No, sir, I do not have the ability Good. To Since you do not believe that, Cut I will off. take that as if you're held in well, contempt, it will question. go forward. You said no, and yes or no was fine, that you don't believe you're above the law. So that really will come to some kind of resolution uh, probably the week of July 6th because they're going to be heading into the congressional recess. But again, I just we want to... We may need some faith healers. <laughs> so yeah, that is pretty fun watching that back and forth. Now, I'm just going to play a little bit of this clip for you. Trump's lawyer is really heavy-handedly, hand-fistedly, if you will, signaling that his loyalty is going to be to himself and his family, not to Donald. Now to the ABC News exclusive, George Stephanopoulos, one-on-one -on -one with President Trump's former longtime personal attorney, Michael Cohen. The president's so-called fixer, who once said, I will do anything to protect Mr. Trump, now telling George he will put country and family first. This is weird. So uh, he wouldn't go on camera. George wasn't allowed to go in there with a video camera, but they could go in there with a DSLR and snap or an iPhone and snap as many pictures as they want. 
and then they're going to release selective quotes from the interview. But it's clear Michael Cohen is working with ABC to send a strong signal. If you F with me, I will roll over and play ball like that. Cohen under intense pressure since the FBI raided his home and his office, perhaps signaling his willingness to cooperate with federal prosecutors. Perhaps. Perhaps scheduling an interview with us and saying very specific and selective things may be an indication of his intention, perhaps. Although we can't tell because in the entire history of the ABC apparatus, this would be the first time that it ever happened. So we're just guessing. Here's ABC's chief news anchor, George Stephanopoulos. He's the lawyer and fixer who once vowed he'd take a bullet for his most famous client. I'll do anything to protect Mr. Trump. I'm obviously very loyal and very dedicated to Mr. Trump. But when I sat down with Michael Cohen in New York this weekend, it was clear something has changed. Federal prosecutors are breathing down his neck. And when I asked Cohen what he'll do if they offer him leniency in return for information on President Trump. Now remind yourselves for a moment. Just go back and think, okay, what was he charged with? What, what has Michael Cohen been, um, what was it? What was, nothing. He's been charged with nothing. This is, this is all preemptive messaging, and ABC is playing ball. Cohen, what he'll do if they offer him leniency in return for information on President Trump, he was emphatic. Leniency. If they offer him leniency, he hasn't even been charged yet likely going to be and this is probably our biggest signal if anything that he's going to be charged right here but just keep in mind at the in at the point of this he he has not been charged and so the conversation starts with well if you get charged like it's just it's weird that they don't make that disclaimer up front they're talking about leniency in something he hasn't even been charged with yet they offer him leniency in return for information on president trump he was emphatic my wife, my daughter, and my son have my first loyalty, he said, and they always will. I put family and country first. Three times I pressed him, and three times his answer was the same. Family first. Mr. President, is Michael Cohen going to flip, sir? Will Michael Cohen flip, Thank sir? you very much. In the Oval Office today, Thank President Trump much. ignored questions. In the past, he predicted Cohen won't turn against him, tweeting, Most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble. Sorry, I don't see Michael doing that. But now Cohen is sending a clear signal to the president, prosecutors, and the country. I will not be a punching bag as part of anyone's defense strategy, he told me. I am not a villain of this story, and I will not allow others to try to depict me that way. Yeah, but I wonder, is he trying to send a message? I wonder. Hmm. Let's preface this entire thing with a, with a question, when it's obvious. Uh, and I love it. I think it's so great. I'm really curious to see where this goes. What's Where is this going to go? And is it going to get really dirty? So it's if you recall, they got – and this is off memory, so I could be wrong. But I believe it was two mobile devices, mobile phones from his office, and then like 11 other, quote, electronic devices. I suppose that could be everything from a a PC or an iPad. But for some reason, and I don't know why, but for some reason when I heard electronic devices, I kind of thought recorders, you know, like little uh, portable recorders. Could be that. Wouldn't that be interesting? And maybe that's why he's so willing to play ball. That's just uh, Chris's bacon. Take that with a grain of bacon salt, which, by the way, if you didn't know, is actually a thing. And uh, let's shift gears to immigration. 
Last week, I wrapped up our coverage on immigration saying, okay, well, these detention centers and the separation of parents and kids is wrapping up. But what the hell are they going to do about all of the families they've already separated? That breaking news at the border overnight, a federal judge ordering the government to reunite separated families within 30 days. And children under five must now be reunited with their parents in just 14 days. More than 2,000 of those separated children are still in federal custody. ABC's chief national affairs correspondent, Tom Yamas, is traveling with the Customs and Border Protection in Tucson, Arizona, and has the latest on all of this. Good morning, Tom. Out there by the cactus. Cecilia, good morning to you. This is a major headline. As you mentioned, there are still more than 2,000 children who were separated from their parents. And now a U.S. district judge in California setting a hard deadline for those families to be reunited. Here's what the order says specifically. And you laid some of these out there in the intro. First, families need to be reunited within 30 days. Children younger than five must be reunited within 14 days of this order. I like the clear cold, calculated efficiency that, of course, is inefficient. If you're a kid, you've got to be returned within a certain amount of time. But if you're under five, then it must be 14 days. Like they have this arbitrary line where they've decided that five years of age or less is the magical number. Something tells me that my five-year-old and my eight-year-old would pretty much be on the same page when it comes to this particular subject. And the order also stops any future separations. The judge putting it very bluntly in his decision. Listen to this. The unfortunate reality is that under the president's system, migrant children are not accounted for with the same efficiency and accuracy as property. Certainly that cannot satisfy the requirement of due process. I like that the judge is getting in the political fray there and uh, attributing it directly to Trump. Uh, Well done. Well done. And uh, this weekend, I kind of got wrapped up unexpectedly in a small town here in the Pacific Northwest in these protests. There was hundreds of protests going around the country this last weekend. Hundreds of rallies were held around the country today under the banner Families Belong Together to protest the Trump administration's immigration policies. Now, I mean, I'm not going to be this guy too much here in this episode, but this is a 2014 Obama policy. So it's it's. I mean, it's not a. It was an Obama policy combined with a court verdict combined with a change in policy enforcement. So it's really a, it's like this triangle of shit is really what's happened here to cause this situation. But I do feel like whenever you have a a situation that comes up, like a complex political situation, it, I, I feel like a measuring stick in which you can use. You can stick it in the water and say yeah, this is some shitty water, is when everything gets collapsed down to a single variable. You've heard me talk about this before on the show, and I think it's really applicable here. When you hear the argument getting collapsed to a single variable, you know that there's probably something that isn't completely true to this. Like this is coming from a belief system because what we do as humans, as individuals, is we try to simplify things. Oh, that son of a bitch is a Trump supporter. Boom. I can now write off everything he says. Oh, that guy, he's a crazy leftist. He's a leftist. I can write off everything he says now. It gives you an excuse to reaffirm your internal belief system. So what you do, and it's a matter of efficiency. It's actually pretty great. You know, it's probably what made us uh, so so dominant on this planet was we have a lot of efficiencies here. And one of the things we do is we collapse things down to their simplest variable. So the current situation with immigration is now Donald Trump's fault. 
which of course is ignorant to the last 35 years plus that have been leading us in this direction. It's completely ignorant to that. In fact, it's disingenuous, but it allows you to wrap your head around the situation super quick, identify what's outrageous about it, and move forward in a way that you feel like is contributing to the situation, which is really validating because let's be honest, we don't have a lot of time on this planet. So what the fuck can we do to actually make it worth the entire time we were here? What can we leave behind? We have children. We have things we try to do. There is limited time. People need something that is the fight of their age. So they go after things like this. You collapse things down to a single simple variable. It makes it easy to get angry. It makes it easy to take action. And that action can manifest itself in many different ways, in ways that people that have political agendas, like the Soros folks, like the Koch folks, many others, many others, but those are the names that we all recognize, the, they, they avail themselves to take advantage of these people. And so you get stupid sons of bitches that are spending their entire weekend fighting for some rich bastard's agenda that they're completely detached for because they're just desperate to make a difference. Because what they do all day long doesn't matter. They wake up, they get themselves out of bed, they go to some stupid fucking job, they grind that shit out, they go home, they eat, they watch some TV... And maybe things go okay that evening. Like there's not a lot of there's I, like this is how this is how I felt at least. I mean maybe I, I'm I'm I won't I won't try to project here, but from I'll speaking just on my own personal experience now. You want an opportunity to dent the universe while you're alive. You want to make a difference. You want your life to mean something. And as you get older, you realize this shit isn't gonna last forever. And the older you get, the more you think about that, the more that gets on your mind. But when you're younger, when you're, when you're in high school, when you're in college, when you're in your 20s, you don't realize that it's in the back of your mind fucking with you a little bit, motivating you a little bit. Some of us do, but some of us don't. And so you're looking for something to make all of this worth it. You can go change an avatar. You can go tweet about your virtue. But the thing is, if you can take action, if you can get out there, if you've got an opportunity, if there's a website where you can go get a, a sign that you can hold up, if you can go get a pussy hat, there's action you can take that's making a difference. And that's what we did in the 60s, right? That's what matters. And so when I watch this, I can't help but feel a little, a little disappointed because when, when I was in my local town this weekend and I saw this protest, I didn't see people that were courageous. I didn't see people that were taking a strong political stand. I saw a group of sheep that were being manipulated. That sucks. I mean, that really sucks. You're driving through your town and unexpectedly you come across this huge group of people uh, in my town too, <laughs> just just for observation purposes, is, you know, much of middle-aged women and men, mostly all white, really, from what I saw, they were holding up signs saying we're all immigrants, holding up signs that say families belong together. 
But I just can't buy into it because if you really cared about that kind of stuff, wouldn't you be doing something about the fuck ton of homeless that we've got everywhere here in Seattle or the fact that people are methed out of their head, that the the opioid crisis has gone completely mental or that people get locked up for putting things in their own body in the privacy of their own home? Like, wouldn't you be getting worked up about any of that stuff? You're only getting worked up about this because you were told to get worked up about this. And so when I see you, I, I don't feel a sense of pride. I don't feel like a sense of camaraderie. I see a bunch of sheep, and it's so disappointing. And so this, this guy right here, this is the big opportunity. This is right outside the White House. Of course, Trump isn't there, but this is right outside the White House. So when this guy got up on stage, I was ready for a big speech. One of the rallies was in Lafayette Square, across the street from the White House, while the president is in New Jersey for the weekend. This portion is an hour and 15 minutes. Wave to the helicopters, he says. I love you! I love you too. We're here Uh because there's parents right now who can't sing lullabies to their kids. Oh. And, um... Well, I'm just going to sing a lullaby uh, that I wrote. And this is for those parents. And we're not going to stop until they can sing them to their kids again. Okay. And then he does. He he sings a a lullaby. And he sings that for about five minutes and then he walks off stage. And I, I, I don't know. I was watching, hoping to get something from it. And what I got was I felt embarrassed for him. And you're not getting the whole story here. And you know that. Hundreds of thousands of people are marching in cities across the U.S. against President Trump's immigration crackdown. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. More than 700 rallies have been taking place in towns and cities throughout Saturday from New York and Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. Now, isn't it kind of funny that all of these rallies are happening two weeks after the policy change has happened that prevents this? I mean, I mentioned that because I think it matters, because I think it's demonstrative of what's actually happening. There is an organization. You don't get 700 protests You don't get thousands of protesters. You don't have everybody in every city using the same signs by accident. This protest and its organization and the group behind it were put into movement before Trump signed an executive order to change this. And then before there was a judge order to reunite families. So this protest that was organized across 700 cities in the United States was set into motion before these resolutions occurred. But then once the resolutions occurred, well, shit, it's too late. You know what? We've got the permits. We've got the signs. We've got the hundreds of people fired up. We're just going to go through with it. The thing that that tells us, I believe, whether it's organized, whether it's organic, I think the thing that that tells us, the big picture meta topic to take away from it, is that these protests must move the needle in some way. Otherwise, your Koch brothers and your Soruses and your other GMOs and whatnots wouldn't be organizing this son of a bitch. 
Because why? It, they wouldn't be spending the money and the effort and risking the political heat unless it made a difference. So I wonder if there was actually an organic movement, if it could actually make change, because it would seem so. There is a lot of movement right now, at least in this past week, to abolish ICE. But it just doesn't seem genuine to me. Senators Gillibrand, Warren and Harris have joined the rallying cry to abolish and replace ICE. Do you agree? Well, I just think that if you abolish ICE as it is, as an executive agency, it reflects the policies of the White House, of the president. You, you abolish ICE now, you still have the same president with the same failed policies. Um, whatever you replace it with is just going to still reflect what this president wants to do. So no, you don't support abolishing ICE? I, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of other things we can do before we get to that point. Um, first of which, which is, you know, you've got someone in the White House who has these policies which are horrendous, which he still hasn't fixed. And families are still separated. Children are still in cages. Um, nursing babies are still separated from their moms. Let's talk about... They don't like it when you are pro-ICE. That's, uh, that's not good anymore. And you got to wonder if maybe the backlash uh, across the border hasn't l- led to a recent victory by what some are calling a leftist president, what some are calling Mexico's Trump, which <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but we do have ourselves a new president. Mexico's national election on Sunday revealed an electrifying win for the Moreno party of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Natasha Sweet has more on the results. Winning more than 50 percent of the vote, popular leftist Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador will be the next president of Mexico. Lopez Obrador addressing his supporters from his campaign headquarters in Mexico City, saying he will combat corruption even if he has to go after his own partners in the fight. Oh, man, it's totally Putin. Man, that guy's playing chess all the time. Now, Mr. Chase isn't here this week, as you've noticed, because he is in the process of getting out of the North Korea. So we don't have a mail sack, but we did get a bunch of new patrons. So your thanks is coming up in just a moment in the overtime. But before we get to overtime, you know we got to do the high note. Mommy needs a joint. And it's good news for those pot smokers in Michigan. In local matters, voters in Michigan will head to the polls next month to cast their ballots in this year's primary races. That's when candidates will be forced to weigh in on the state's decision to put recreational marijuana on its November ballot. Now, if that measure is approved... Michigan would become the 10th state to legalize cannabis for adult recreational use. For more on this, Detroit Free Press political reporter Kathy Gray, she covers marijuana in Michigan. Uh, Kathy, first question. How do you get that job? How do you get that job? That seems like if this podcast thing doesn't work out, that would be such a great job. Now, things are also looking up in Cleveland. Only on News 5, many say it's just a matter of time. Medical marijuana is supposed to be available to people who need it in just a few months. But the city of Cleveland is getting ready to go one step farther. The city council set up a working group to start looking at what would have to change if recreational marijuana becomes legal. News 5's Kevin Barry found out. It's all about staying in front of national trends. With medical marijuana available in Ohio in just a few months. We want to make sure whatever we do is fair. Cleveland City Councilman Blaine Griffin says it's time to explore what's next for recreational marijuana in Cleveland. He's proposing a working group, bringing together law enforcement with city departments to work through the red tape. We believe it's time for us to start having that discussion and seeing if it might be the right thing to do in the city of Cleveland. He says there's property zoning that would have to change and other rules the city would want to form, making the new industry beneficial 
for everyone. The Ohio legislature or a ballot initiative is needed to legalize marijuana, but even before that's happened, 12 of Cleveland's 17 city council members are on the resolution trying to form the group. Lots of other council people have had the same conversations that I've had with their residents, that we need to get out of the dark ages with this. Ohio's medical marijuana program is supposed to be active in September. Legal experts say it's still too early to tell what kind of impact a recreational use program would have. The lawyer, Tom Heron. All right, moving on. So Cleveland's looking up. But uh, what about Vermont? Did you hear the good news in Vermont? Friends, you can't buy it there, but now you can smoke it there. Okay, all right, that's much better. It's a day many have been anticipating. Legal marijuana in the Green Mountains. Hetty Vermont, a cannabis advocacy organization, held the legalization celebration Sunday on private property in Johnson. It's not about smoking weed as much as it is celebrating our ability to be able to do that, to be able to grow these plants, and maybe more importantly for a lot of the professionals here, like to come out with more open conversations, help mo- hopefully move away from the stigma. Patty Humiston agrees with that negative stigma. While she isn't a regular consumer of cannabis, she isn't afraid to say she may start again now that she can grow her own. You can grow it according to what you're looking for instead of getting it on the street, which you don't really know what you're getting. So I'm willing to try it. Man, if anybody in the Dallas area grows their own, you got to let me know. Telegram me at Chris LES. I got to know. I'm flying down to Dallas next week uh, to help Linux Academy live stream their big event. So there may not be an unfilter next week simply because I think I might be returning on Wednesday. So as Chase gets back from North Korea, ironically, I will be flying back from Texas. So he'll be back for like two or three days and I'll be gone. So there may not be an episode next week. It it depends on if I stay down in Texas. I may opt to just remain in Texas for a little while because I love it down there. Uh, So there may be an episode. There may not. Unfilter.show slash subscribe. That's the best bet. That way you know you'll get an episode if we do one. But I got one more story. And I don't understand why these keep happening to these dumb sons of bitches who call the cops. And an unexpected catch for one fisherman. Take a look at this. A fisherman off the coast of Pompano Beach, he found a brick of marijuana in what he calls an early birthday gift from Pablo Escobar. In an Instagram post, George Bustamante said he was looking to catch a few mahi-mahi and kingfish, but instead he found the narcotics just floating in the weed line, he says. He radioed the U.S. Coast Guard, who confirmed the package was indeed marijuana, and took it away. (laughs) Why do they call the Coast Guard? Like, that kind of stuff never happens to me. And the last thing I would do would be call the Po. Like, I don't know, maybe it's because I've been poor for so long. I would maybe consider selling it or, you know, enjoying it. Why would you call the cops? But you know what? I guess good on them. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a story. So there's that. Now, the overtime's coming up. I got thanks to our new patrons. There was some really interesting details that came out in a budget meeting about America's future war plans and why we're not done in Syria yet and what we're going to do about Russia building oil pipelines. All that's coming up in the overtime. But if you got to go, let me leave you with a bit of details. We might not have an episode next week. So unfilter.show is where you go. That's where you get links to everything I talked about on filter.show slash 285. And if I, if I can make it happen, we'll be live on Wednesday. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted in your local time. Oh! 
I think that's probably all the details I have to leave you with. If you want to get me on Telegram or on Twitter, I am at Chris LAS. If you're down in the Dallas area and you want to hang out, I might extend my stay. Let me know. I think that'd be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, if you got to go, go over to unfilter.show and grab some past episodes. Go give Mr. Chase a little love at Nunes. And a big thank you to producer Matt, who got all of the clips, with a few exceptions. He did a great job this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week's episode of the Unfilter program. And I'll see you back. I'll see you. Well, I was going to say <laughs> it's not true, actually. I won't see you next week. Hmm. I'll see you back here real soon. stuff is coming up. It's time for our Patrons over at patreon.com slash unfiltered. Claiming my time. Thank you to our 26, 26 new patrons. Holy crap goes to Holger, Chatter, Charles, James, don't quit unfiltered Chris or I will be sad, are Tim, <laughs> Laureen, Samuel, 1i11g, Article Leap, Carrara, Hackers Game, David, Daniel, Josh, Doug, Robert, ML, Robert, Josh, Real Virtue with Andrew, James, Adam, Lewis, David, Frank, and Nate. You are our 26 new patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Now, I told you last episode, don't go support the show. And somehow that got 26 of you to become new patrons. Plus, we had some of you up your patronage as well. So thank you so much for supporting this show. And uh, that's why I'm here on the 4th of July doing a show on America's birthday because of the awesome support we got from you guys. And I'm not the only one out there hustling. Nancy Pelosi's out there hustling, and she's concerned about soybeans. The only problem is she can't actually pronounce soybeans. Last week, soybean futures hit a nine-year low. What was it again? I'm sorry, let's play it back, because it just kind of goes by real quick. Last, last week, soybean futures hit a nine-year low. Oh, soybean futures. Soybean, boy. Soybean futures hit a nine-year low. There you go, girl. You got it. Pork producers, corn growers, and wheat growers are reeling, too. You know wheat growers. You know about those wheat growers. low. Pork producers, corn growers, and wheat growers are reeling, too. Damn growers. That's so far this week. The Supreme Court's radical uh, Janus decision will have drastic, destruct- destructive, and long-standing impacts. They have reduced the leverage of workers in our country. It's just such an irony that her title is Speaker of the House. Speaker. What an irony that is. Lose their leverage for, again, collective bargaining, raised the standard. 
So here we are. We have a better deal. This is a raw deal. We have a better deal. But I've also disagreed with Justice Kennedy's uh, interpretation of the Constitution. Make no mistakes. Mistake. No, don't make any mistakes. Uh, interpretation of the Constitution. Make no mistakes. No. Mistake. No. 120, 130, 125, 130 you know, ish. million Americans have pre-existing conditions. So our... You're what? You're what? Provenance. Our history on this uh-huh. is one that has been solid. Ah. I appreciate that question. You want to repeat your question? Yeah, could you please repeat your question? She really appreciates it and wants you to repeat it. is one that has been solid. I appreciate that question. You want to repeat your question because it was in the same line, I think. How- Invest in education and health care and research uh, to keep America our, our, uh, keep America great again? To keep America great again? And research uh, to keep America... Uh, uh, what? To do what? Keep it great again? Our, uh, Don't say great again. Don't say it. Don't say great again. Apprenticeship programs. Oh, okay, good, good. We got that out. Good. It took her a second. She accidentally almost said great again. Now, Maxine, Maxine is not uh, not really doing so well. Uh, you guys, you guys heard about if you watched last week's episode, her calling for. Um, well, it's really it's being described as violence, but it's it's really just to harass Trump uh, uh, staff. Really, what she called for, but now it's it's sort of getting blown up in, in a way that I'm completely enjoying, and it's given Maxine a chance to throw out one of her favorite lines. You know, you, she's got a couple of go-to lines. Reclaiming my time. She's also got my millennials stay woke. But the longer one that she's got, and I've played it before on this show, you've heard it before, and now she's trotted out more than ever. If you're gonna shoot me, you better fill in the blank because this I won't steal her line. This is her new line. I know that there are those who are talking about censoring me, talking about kicking me out of Congress, talking about shooting me. Who's talking about shooting you? I don't think anybody's talking about shooting you. Talking about hanging me. I don't think anyone is talking about hanging you. They're talking about you being a moron. They're talking about you running off at the mouth. They're talking about you undermining the Democratic Party. They're talking about you inciting violence against the president and his staff. But nobody's calling to hang or shoot you. I don't think... Kicking me out of Congress. Talking about shooting me. Talking about hanging me. All I I have to say is this. Here it comes. It's one of her favorite lines. If you shoot me, you better shoot straight. There's nothing like a wounded animal. Anti-vaccine, you're so funny. You're so good. You're so good. You got those. So here's an awkward moment. There was a moment. So last week I played Chuck Schumer, but this week it was way more awkward. The chairman of a panel that Maxine is sitting on makes a long commentary about civility about how calling for people to harass Trump supporters at restaurants is very similar to calling on people to harass black people at restaurants. In fact, the chairman made an apt comparison. He said, now you no longer get kicked out for the color of your skin, but you get kicked out for the color of your voting card. And he goes on to talk about the civility in their conversations and their debates. What's super awkward is the next person in line to talk after the chairman is Maxine Waters. And all of the chairman's comments were directed at Maxine Waters. What's even more awkward is they sit right next to each other, shoulder to shoulder. It's great. And as to the chairman's comments about civility, 
and about what he would do if he owned a restaurant. Let me just say that I think every reasonable person has concluded that the President of the United States of America has advocated violence, he has been divisive, and he has been the one that has caused what we see happening today, where people are trying to push back on his policies and where people are trying to have peaceful protests instead of violence, but he continues to call names and he continues uh, to challenge people in very violent ways. I'll quote to you some of his uh, said. So you see, it's not Maxine's fault. It's it's Donald Trump's fault. Maxine Waters being a lunatic is all Donald Trump's fault. Don't you understand? Obviously. And of course, the upheaval in the Democratic Party after a young socialist won a seat in the U.S. Congress against a veteran Democrat... Well, that's just ignore that. Nothing to see here. Country is reacting to the results of the primary congressional elections that took place Tuesday in five U.S. states. Now, the media has focused on the fight between Donald Trump and his critics. But below the surface, another fight is boiling. The fight for control of the Democratic Party. In New York City's borough of the Bronx, a 10-term Democratic congressman Uh faced off against a 28-year-old for the nomination of the Democratic Party. Ocasio-Cortez accused her opponent, Representative Crowley, of being quote, bankrolled by corporations. She made clear she wasn't just taking aim at Crowley, but at the leadership of her own party. He commands a very, very questionable political machine. He has presided over a lot of ethics issues around corporate fundraising. Now, the political newcomer in the Bronx is not alone. The theme of wresting the control of the Democratic Party away from a corporate elite is becoming a pretty common theme in the lead up to the November midterm elections. Huh. 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 What has been the number one point I have made during every single O'Nancy segment? The O'Nancy segment was created to really focus in on these corporatist Democrats that are causing the Democrats to lose elections. It looks like I'm not the only one that's noticing now. More and more people are noticing. It's a real problem. And Maxine Waters is legitimately throwing a wrench into the entire thing. She's not aligned on any one particular side. Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi would like her to shut the hell up. So would Donald Trump. They have a common enemy in Maxine Waters. Doesn't make me like her anymore. I just find that to be totally fascinating. I, I, I just I think it's ironic. It's like she if she could just be a little more savvy, she could really get in tight. She could be a dynamic figure on the corporate side. But because she's trying to build up her own political identity, be called anti-Maxine and all of this, she's going outside the lines and she's upsetting her own party. It's just it's so wonderful to watch. At the White House, a secret meeting minutes before the announcement. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. Anthony M. Kennedy. Justice Anthony Kennedy. Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy slipping into the West Wing for what the president called a deep discussion. Uh He's displayed tremendous vision and tremendous heart, and he will be missed. When Trump says tremendous vision... What I hear is he was politically savvy enough to get out of the way so that I can pick somebody and put them in. So I really appreciate that. That's that's what I hear there. That's my own bias, obviously, informing that. But it seems to me what he's what he's saying and tremendous heart. And he will be missed. So you have tremendous heart when you're compassionate for Trump's situation. You follow my logic and his vision and tremendous heart. And he will be missed. And hopefully we're going to pick somebody who will be as outstanding. Who will you pick to replace him, sir? 
We have a list of 25 people that I actually had during my election. That list consists mostly of conservative-leaning judges, including Maryland's Brett Kavanaugh and Pennsylvania's Thomas Hardiman, both widely believed to be on the short list. Whoever the president picks could reshape the court for a generation. Yeah, as Veratunda puts it, uh, tremendous vision equals jumped before we pushed him out. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I feel like it is. And, of course, he's meeting with the possible candidates, maybe he's getting his pledge of loyalty. The battle is brewing over the Supreme Court. President Trump meeting with court candidates this week. Four yesterday, two more expected as early as today as he prepares to announce his pick to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy on Monday, July 9th. ABC's Kira Phillips is tracking it all from Washington. Good morning, Kira. We don't need to follow her commentary because obviously they don't know and we'll just have to wait and see. And when something develops, your unfiltered show will cover it. All right. I want to just totally change things up a little bit. It's a little bit of a hard shift here, and I apologize. I apologize. No, 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 no. Hey. But if I were to ask you, what is one of the topics that's just sort of quietly fallen aside? What are we not talking about anymore that may have way larger links to gun trafficking, how we supplied ISIS, and has a role in the larger gun debate. There is a story that's completely slipped by because no one's talking about it except for one man, one hero out there. Let me roll the dice. That's right. It's time for Cucker Tuckerson. It has been many months since the mass shooting in Las Vegas, the largest in modern American history. Even now, new information, for some reason, continues to trickle out. Key information. Newly released video shows Las Vegas police waiting in the hallway at the Mandalay Bay Hotel, even as Stephen Paddock continues to murder people below. The obvious question is, why is this footage coming out now, and why did the police not act for several minutes? Catherine Lombardo is an attorney representing some of the victims of those shootings, and she joins us tonight. Catherine, thank you for coming on. Um, so you. the first question is, why are we finding this out now? This seems like a central piece of information in the story. Because the court ordered the Las Vegas Metro Police Department to release all of this video footage. So the video footage, in case it wasn't quite clear from Cucker's setup there, is, and they're showing the B-roll on the screen, so if you're listening, it's not quite as obvious. It's new video that just shows officers chillaxing in the hallway while the shooting is happening. It is really weird. It is extremely hard to explain. It is just them standing in the hallway with their guns drawn, listening to the shooting. Perhaps they're waiting to go in. It's very odd. And pursuant to court order, they are uh, releasing it piece by piece uh, over the last couple of months. And as you know, yesterday we received... Oh, about a dozen videos and uh, many more audio videos uh, showing mostly police officer body-worn camera footage. Yeah, this is a body cam. Every now and then you can see the chin of the cop who's just chilling. It's fascinating. It is also very, very upsetting. Um, It shows the extremeness of the event and the trauma that everyone there, the 22,000 people uh, who were there, have suffered. You know, interesting, in that video, I've been in that very hallway, in the stairwell, uh, at the door. Creepy. uh, There on the 31st floor and the 32nd floor. I was there just some months ago. And what the video clearly shows 
is that this one particular police officer was on the 31st floor, not the 32nd floor, and he was there for many, many moments. What we find interesting is that the Mandalay Bay security officer who was with that particular uh, police officer before the shooting started and raced through the casino floor and raced up the elevators with him, this particular Mandalay Bay security guard said that he was on the 32nd floor with that particular officer in the video on the 31st floor. This Mandalay Bay security manager told the FBI on nine separate occasions in his interviews that he was certain he was with this officer Hendricks on the 32nd floor. So we already knew that this officer Hendricks was on the 31st floor, but it wasn't until yesterday when all of that video was released that we finally got confirmation that something is wrong, something's amiss. This whole thing, it's just the tip of the iceberg. We've only scratched the surface. It's unbelievable. This is the second time mm -hmm. in several months we've seen armed police officers stand there while a mass murder takes place. I'm very sympathetic to cops. I think they take a lot of crap. It is just really odd. And uh, I feel like nobody's talking about it. So I just wanted to keep you up to date on what we do get. Now, there was a budget hearing, super run-of-the-mill, motherfrickin' budget hearing that uh, your humble host happened to grab the C-SPAN feed of. Now, this is with Secretary of State boss Mike Pompeo. Yeah, the former CIA guy who's now the Secretary of State. And what the entire hearing demonstrates is how pivotal to the war machine the, the uh, State Department is. Every aspect of our wars that we are engaged in, he has answers to, and the future wars that we're going to get into. And that's what I want to talk about. So they asked Mike Pompeo, the head of the State Department, Hillary Clinton's former gig, what we need to do about Syria. And of course, I was listening very intently, hoping, oh, geez, here we go. What we need to do with Syria is transition control back to the Assad government, let their allies like Russia help them rebuild, and then maybe bring them into the world economic system over time. But that's not what Mike Pompeo said. No, what Mike Pompeo said makes it sound like we're not getting out of Syria anytime soon. We're going to get through Syria via Iran. Okay, excuse me. So let me ask you a hard question. This is Senator James Lankford, uh, Republican out of Oklahoma. Um, not that any of these are simple, I guess. Um, can we move forward in Syria long term with Iran present and with Assad present? No. Okay. Strategically, is that where we're going as a country? Uh, as we're negotiating with the Russians, as we're negotiating with the Turks and the Jordanians that are so exceptionally important to us in the region. So important. Uh, they, we have a consistent uh, cooperation with them on that. So I've, we, I've spent a fair amount of time working this issue. I'm hopeful we can get back to the political process that is stalled. It stalled out before I uh, took office. The political process is code for getting Assad out of power. So uh, the long-held rhetoric about Syria has always been Syria is not solely a military process. It's a military process combined with a political process. That political process is an international process where all of the countries that don't like Assad come together to pick his replacement. It's how you get a U.S. puppet in office. Assad, who was democratically elected by his people, is called a dictator. His government is called a regime. 
That's how we that's how we phrase things. When it's someone we don't like, it's a regime. When they're playing ball with us, it's much lighter. Now, you can just go into recent history within the last couple of weeks and witness this for yourself, dear listener. In fact, I would encourage you to pay critical attention to when the news is now talking about Kim Jong. Months ago, it was dictator, the Kim regime, the North Korean regime. Kim Jong was a brutal dictator. North Korea was a brutal regime. Now, after his summit with Donald Trump, well, now it's Chairman Kim. You see, Chairman Kim. All of a sudden, we're calling him Chairman Kim by his official title that his country calls him. Just like Syria calls Assad President Assad. But right now, he's a brutal dictator, and it's the Assad regime. If things were to change overnight, if all of a sudden Donald Trump were to have a summit with Assad, well, all of a sudden we'd be calling him President Assad. You see, this language matters because it shows you our intentionality. Get back to the political process that is stalled. It stalled out before I uh, took office uh, a couple months prior to that. Um, we have lots of regional allies. The, the Gulf states are all very helpful. The Jordan. Very helpful. Our regional allies, you know, like Saudi Arabia, Israel, the folks that are willing to fund our war machine and train terrorists. They've been very helpful. Um, we have lots of regional allies. The, the Gulf states are all very helpful. The Jordan, Jordanians are very helpful. Uh, the Europeans here, too, share a common understanding, uh, Israelis uh, most certainly. Uh, it, it is the case that the Assad regime has been enormously successful over what amounts to now uh, coming up on seven years, I guess, since the beginning. I guess. Seven years since we started sending in our own trained terrorists to try to overthrow a democratically elected president that has... It's not like we didn't know this, too, by the way, when we went into it, that has Russia and Iran as their allies. We knew Russia was a longtime ally of Syria before we ever sent a single trained ISIS soldier into Syria. We knew that going in. This wasn't something we just learned as Putin stepped up to help out Assad. We didn't go, oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Look at that. Oh, my God. Russia and Syria are buddies. Oops. Now we're getting in trouble with Russia. We knew 100% going in. Which predates Crimea, by the way, which is always which is always listed as this was the real turning point with our relationship with Russia. Well, guess what? The shit we started in Syria predates Crimea. Successful over what amounts to now uh, coming up on seven years, I guess, since the beginning. Uh, from the America's perspective, it seems to me Iran presents the greatest threat to the United States uh -oh. and the place we ought to focus our efforts, at least at the beginning, with respect to the political resolution. Great. Mr. Chairman, I want mission. When the world is threatened, the world needs help, it calls on America. Oh! And that's the story. All right, so there's another, there's another bit of conversation in this hour and 40-minute back and forth that I thought was really important for you to hear. This is Senator Steve Daines, the Republican out of Montana, and he asks about Russia's pipeline that they're building to send natural gas and oil into the EU. And the issue that he has is that that's going to give Russia more political influence in the EU, and it will detract the U.S.'s influence in the EU, and he wants to know what old Mike thinks about this. National security as well. Yeah, I share that view as well, Mr. Secretary. 
I want to pivot over and talk about Russia for pivot. a moment. Um, it's another adversary to U.S. interests, clearly. 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 Uh, from their illegitimate annexation of Crimea. To oh, there it is. <laughs> oh, it didn't take long, did it? <laughs> oh, it's good. It's go you know what? Your unfiltered show knows what's up. To U.S. interests, clearly. Uh, from their illegitimate annexation of Crimea to their efforts to interfere in U.S. elections as determined by the U.S. intelligence community, something you know a lot about. Uh, their behavior has been completely unacceptable. In particular, I'm very concerned about the continuing development of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That All right, did you catch its name? Because he just kind of blows past it, and I want you to Google this. In particular, I'm very concerned about the continuing development of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that has the potential to allow Russia to monopolize much of Europe's energy supply and undermine our European allies' ability to counter Russian influence. It's going to undermine their ability to counter Russian influence because they're going to be hooked on Russia's teat. You see, this is what it's really about. That's what Syria is about. That's what so much of this is actually about. Oil. It's about energy. Energy sales. It's about who is buying energy from who. And whoever you're buying energy from has the maximum political influence over you. World domination is only in part achieved by a strong military, but it is primarily achieved by having economic control over the world. That is the position that the United States enjoys today. When Europe buys oil, they're buying it in American greenback dollars. It's wonderful. And we don't want that to change. We don't want that to change at all because it's been the primary power dynamic since World War II. ...supply and undermine our European allies' ability to counter Russian influence. Will you use every tool available whether via sanctions and authorities provided by the countering America's adversaries through sanctions act or otherwise to impede the development of this pipeline. This is what the sanctions are about. Do you grok that now? The sanctions are about this, not about the hacking, quote unquote, of the election, not about buying a handful of Facebook ads that were seen by a handful of Facebook users. It's not about the Facebook ads. It's not about Paul Manafort. It's not about the 13 Russian nationalists that Paul Manafort is indicted. It's about this pipeline. And it's about making it economically unfeasible for Europe to engage with this because they also want to engage with U.S. companies that are sanctioned from doing business with Russia. You see, it's a way of structuring the business arrangement in such a way that it's very inconvenient to do business with Russia if you're in the EU because they're also dependent on American companies. Whether via sanctions and authorities provided by the countering America's adversaries through sanctions act or otherwise to impede the development of this pipeline. You see that? It's not about the election. It's about impeding the development of the pipeline. Whether via sanctions and authorities provided by the countering America's adversaries through sanctions act or otherwise to impede the development of this pipeline. We are actively engaged in a all-of-U.S. government approach to uh, convincing uh, European governments and European businesses alike that increased energy dependence on Russia is inconsistent with what it is we're all trying to do. We're all trying to do. It's inconsistent with what we're all trying to do. Let's break that down for a second. What does that mean? Let's play it one more time. Energy dependence on Russia is inconsistent with what it is we're all trying to do. <laughs> As he laughs. What it's inconsistent with 
is marginalizing Russia, isolating and marginalizing Russia, which is the primary goal of NATO. Let's be honest. What he's really talking about here is becoming energy dependent on Russia is counter to the NATO primary goal of isolating Russia. And he's just fucking saying it. He's just saying it in a budget hearing. In a budget hearing. He's just fucking laying it out there for you. It's all out there if you just watch C-SPAN. European governments and European businesses alike, that increased energy dependence on Russia is inconsistent with what it is we're all trying to do in pushing back against Russia. Nord Stream 2 is one of several examples that um, we have made clear we think goes in completely the wrong direction in terms of uh, allowing the Russians to have the capacity to exert political influence, uh, not only in Germany, um, but all around Europe. That's what all of this is about, about making Putin the bad guy, about Russian interference in the German and French elections. That's what this is about. It's about scaring their customers to stay buying energy from them. Now, let's shift gears, though, because there is a bigger adversary that the entire United States government is gearing up for, and it's China. Now, your, your good buddy from Montana there, Senator Steve Daines, says that recent China trade disputes and tariffs are not actually about trade disputes and tariffs. It's about a much bigger picture. And Mike says pretty much all of Washington agrees. Chairman Graham, thank you for holding this hearing, and I want to thank Secretary Pompeo for your service in coming before this committee today. Thank you, sir. Uh, Secretary Pompeo, I spent more than half a decade in China in the private sector. I've led multiple CODELs to visit China since coming uh, to Congress, as well as its neighbors. In fact, I've been over there twice in the last 90 days. China's growing regional and global influence is readily apparent. I believe it's critically important that we as a nation founded on freedom and the rule of law, avoid complacency, and that we are clear-eyed about the challenges as well as the opportunities that China brings, especially in its relationship with the United States, a relationship I see as perhaps the most consequential relationship between any two countries in the 21st century. Now, that is actually a pretty huge statement because generally when a government official says something of that magnitude, they're talking about Israel. Um, And I just say that having watched this very hearing, as a matter of fact, it came up. There's no relationship more important than the relationship between Israel and the United States. But here, this crazy senator from Montana is saying that's actually long term the relationship between China and the United States. And I think he's right. Most consequential relationship between any two countries in the 21st century. We cannot just view these ongoing negotiations as a standard trade dispute, but it's imperative we keep in mind China's very strategic approach and long-term goal of becoming the world's superpower. So he says don't look at it as a standard trade dispute. This is about their bigger world ambitions. Both economically and militarily. Secretary Pompeo, in my view, there's only so much that can be done to counter China unilaterally. Do we have to? Is it? Is it just is it just pre is it been foretold by some great creator that because China wants to be a world power we must fight that? I strongly believe that it is critical we work with our allies, China's neighbors in the region to mitigate China's malign actions, whether it be in the South China Sea, their outright theft of IP, 
human rights abuses, or ongoing unfair trade practices. This is especially important as China is engaging with many of our allies now in the region via the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Secretary Pompeo, what are some of your strategic goals in engaging with our allies in the Indo-Pacific region to proactively counter Chinese efforts to... Now, the fact that it's uh, the 4th of July, it's Merca's birthday, and the Eagle's in the house, I gotta I got I got just give you my perspective here. Uh, if I were to put on my nationalist hat, my uh, manifest destiny hat, and my uh, one world empire hat, I would tell you that it is way more important that the U.S. wrap their head around China than Syria and the Middle East. We could, we, the oil stuff is important for the next... 100 years, I grant you. But long term, like there are other means to power and there's technology to make it so. And China has this way of working with nations that we've pissed the F off. This is a this is going to be a major downslide for the United States. This is what we should be worried about. Now, that said, I think you could also argue now I'll take those hats off. Isn't there room for multiple superpowers? Don't we technically already have a world made up of several superpowers? And now it's just about averaging it out and figuring out how everybody fits. Perhaps the world is ready for multiple superpowers. Maybe we can make that work. Maybe there doesn't have to be just one. So that's with my hats on and my hats off. Indo-Pacific region to proactively counter Chinese efforts to expand its influence. Uh, thanks for the question. Secretary Mattis, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, and I have each spent substantial time working on exactly this problem set. You, you, find it, uh, you defined it pretty well. Uh, our, our tool sets um, are relatively new. In they're new, but they're established. Now, listen to how he talks about how the military apparatus has essentially reconfigured itself to take China more seriously. In the sense of it is the case that I think this... Uh, challenge that you identified that the world has been very complacent over the last pick a time horizon, 5, 10, 15 years for sure. Wow, for sure, 15 years. So we're going to attempt to stop something that has the momentum of 15 years? Good luck with that. Uh, we are working through the multilateral organizations, such as ASEAN, uh, APEC, all of those to develop strategies in each of the, the domains that you described. Uh, the trade domain, we're working diligently to figure out how we can uh, develop trade relationships in a way that are fair and reciprocal for the United States, but that don't benefit China don't. at the same time. You nope. see what the president's doing. Yeah, China's going to be all about that. Some deals that don't benefit them. Uh, with respect to China. Second, with respect to uh, diplomacy, uh, w we will come next year and ask for increased resources connected to this region. I know that they did two years ago as well. More money. They're going to want more money for the military for the probably the Navy. That is, we need to be in each of those countries uh, making clear the case that you are far better off with the United States as your partner and ally than you are with China. I think many of those countries didn't see the negative ramifications for uh, moving closer to China over the last five and ten years as well. And then Secretary Mattis himself has uh, truly uh, reconfigured uh, the way that the Department of Defense is thinking about the challenge, not only in the South China Sea, but more broadly, as Chinese expansion in and around, even through the Indian Ocean, has efforted to improve its capacity to uh, do harm to U.S. interests and, frankly, to global trading interests as well. Secretary Pompeo, thank you. And I'm. I'm How about one more? And one more time. That's right. 
world needs help. Gotta stop the Chiners. Yeah! Woo! And that's the story. Happy birthday, America. Happy birthday. Let's go get them Chiners. Let's do it. All right, now let's bring the mood up a bit because that was some heavy stuff. Uh, I got a couple of uh, news bloopers. This is something I don't play a lot considering the amount of news that we take in here to the Unfilter show. But this last month or so, these clips are uh, they are about two weeks old or so. There was some stuff that came in that I thought was super hilarious. Uh, the first one that I really liked was this gal that can't help but uh, miss pronounce something, which is a problem I've struggled with, so I immediately uh, appreciated her position. And it really is when she's outside of her comfort zone. It turns out maybe local news shouldn't be reviewing tech products. I don't know. In the restaurant. But the Versa also offers a fit bitch coat. Oh, oops. <laughs> fit bitch. I mean, again, I said it again. Oh my gosh. Fit bit coat. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> <laughs> the fit bitch. I want to hear one more time because that's just so great. But the Versa also offers a fit bitch coat. Oh, oops. <laughs> fit bitch. I mean, again, I said it again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Fit bit coat. <laughs> I, I could totally see me doing that. I'd be reading something off the screen uh, and then um, could just maybe do like a spot read and just kind of like see well i see it starts with an f and it's got an h in there i don't know i actually can't really oh, the bit i i don't know but i could totally see me doing that now uh, this next clip i wanted to put because it kind of reminds me of what it was like to do this show during the fourth of july with fireworks going off this is although much much worse and it just it really made me laugh i had to cut it together for you but it's so worth it for because i'm i'm gonna join the team oh yeah gold medal for you i would hope so See, you shouldn't have spoken. You shouldn't Fire have said alarm. that. Does this mean we really have a problem? Uh, in the meantime, we will at least bring you... Th- Attention. Attention. Okay. All right, we're listening. This We've got is an emergency the, This reported. is the first time this ever All right, happened Let's show you what's happening at the movies while we figure out if this is a real emergency. Take a look. The best example here, and we're going to leave because there's a fire alarm. We'll see you after this. That's good. A fire alarm in the studio. You know what I think is we ought to call it the Fit Bitch from now on. That should be the new name. That's pretty good. Thanks for joining us. I'm actually not sure if I'll see you next week. So go over to unfiltered.show slash subscribe and we'll see you the next time we have a new episode. We love you. We love you.